Homily 2 of St. John Chrysostom on 1 Corinthians, Part 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Homily 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him. That which he exhorts others to do, saying, let your requests with thanksgiving be made known to God. The same also he used to do himself, teaching us to begin always from these words, and before all things to give thanks unto God, for nothing is so acceptable to God as that men should be thankful, both for themselves and for others. Wherefore also he prefaces almost every epistle with this, but the occasion for his doing so is even more urgent here than in the other epistles. For he that gives thanks does so, both as having received a blessing and as in acknowledgment of a favor. Now a favor is not a debt, nor an exchange, nor a repayment, which indeed everywhere is important to be said, but much more in the case of the Corinthians, who were gaping after the dividers of the church unto my God. Out of great earnestness he seizes on that which is common, and makes it his own, as the prophets also from time to time used to say, O God, my God, and by way of encouragement he incites them to use the same language also themselves. For such expressions belong to one who is retiring from all secular things, and moving towards him whom he calls on with so much earnestness since he alone can truly say this, who from things of this life is ever mounting upwards unto God, and always preferring him to all, and giving thanks continually, not only for the grace already given, but whatever blessing hath been since at any time bestowed. For this also he offereth unto him the same praise. Wherefore he saith not merely, I give thanks, but at all times for you, instructing them to be thankful, both always, and to no one else save God only. For the grace of God, seest thou how from every quarter he draws topics for correcting them? For where grace is, works are not. Where works, it is no more grace. If therefore it be grace, why are ye high-minded? Whence is it that ye are puffed up? Which is given you? And by whom was it given, by me or by another apostle? Not at all, but by Jesus Christ. For the expression in Jesus Christ signifies this. Observe how in diverse places he uses the word en, in, instead of theou, through means of whom. Therefore its sense is no less, that in everything ye have been enriched. Again, by whom? By him is the reply, and not merely ye have been enriched, but in everything. Since then, it is first of all riches then, riches of God, next in everything, and lastly, through the only begotten, reflect on the ineffable treasure. Verse 5. In all utterance and in all knowledge, word or utterance, not such as the heathen, but that of God, for there is knowledge without word and there is knowledge with word. For so there are many who possess knowledge, 
but have not the power of speech, as those who are uneducated, and unable to exhibit clearly what they have in their mind. Ye, saith he, are not such as these, but competent both to understand and to speak. Verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, in the course of his praises and thanksgiving, he touches them sharply. For not by heathen philosophy, saith he, neither by heathen discipline, but by the grace of God, and by the riches and the knowledge. In the word given by him, were you enabled to learn the doctrines of the truth, and to be confirmed unto the testimony of the Lord, that is, unto the gospel. For ye had the benefit of many signs, many wonders, unspeakable grace, to make you receive the gospel. If therefore ye were established by signs and grace, why do ye waver? Now these are the words of one both reproving, and at the same time prepossessing them in his favor. Verse 6. So that ye come behind in no gift. A great question here arises. They who had been enriched in all utterance, so as in no respect to come behind in any gift, are they carnal? For if they were such at the beginning, much more now. How then does he call them carnal? For, saith he, I was not able to speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. What must we say then, that having in the beginning believed and obtained all gifts, for indeed they were zealously affected, they became remiss afterwards? Or, if not so, that not unto all are either these things said or those, but the one to such as were amenable to his censures, the other to such as were adorned with his praises. For as to the fact that they still had gifts, each one, saith he, hath a psalm, hath a revelation, hath a tongue, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edifying, and let the prophets speak two or three. Or we may state it somewhat differently, that, as it is usual with us to call the greater part the whole, so also he hath spoken in this place. With all, I think, he glances at his own proceedings, for he too hath shown forth signs, even as also he saith in the second epistle to them, Howbeit the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. And again, for what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches? Either, as I was saying, he reminds them of his own miracles also, or further, he speaks thus with an eye to those who were as yet approved. For many holy men were there who had addicted themselves unto the ministry of the saints, and had become the first fruits of Achaia, as he declareth towards the end. In any case, although the praises be not very close to the truth, still, however, they are inserted by way of precaution preparing the way beforehand for his discourse. For whoever at the very outset speaks things unpleasant excludes his words from a hearing among the weaker, since if the hearers be his equals in degree, they feel angry. If vastly inferior, they will be vexed. To avoid this, he forms his exorium out of what seems to be praises. I say seem, for not even did this praise belong to them but to the grace of God. For to have had remission of sins, 
and to have been justified. This was the gift from above. Wherefore also he dwells upon these points, which show the loving kindness of God, in order that he may the more fully purge out of their malady. Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why make ye much ado, saith he? Why are ye troubled, that Christ is not come? Nay, he is come, and the day is henceforth at the doors. And consider his wisdom, how, withdrawing them from human considerations, he terrifies them by mention of the fearful judgment seat, and thus implying that not only the beginnings must be good, but the end also. For with all these gifts, and with all else that is good, we must be mindful of that day, and there is need of many labors to be able to come unto the end. Revelation is his word, implying that although he be not seen, yet he is, and is present even now, and then shall appear. Therefore there is need of patience. For this end did ye receive the wonders, that ye may remain firm. Verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless? Here he seems to court them, but the saying is free from all flattery, for he knows also how to press them home, as when he saith, Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. And again, what will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? And since ye ask a proof of Christ speaking in me, but he is also covertly accusing them, for to say, He shall confirm, and the word blameless, marks them out as still wavering, and liable to blame. But do thou consider how he always fastens them, as with nails to the name of Christ, and not any man or teacher, but continually the desired one himself is remembered by him, setting himself, as it were, to arouse those who were heavy-headed after some debauch. For nowhere in any other epistle doth the name of Christ occur so continually, but here it is, many times in a few verses, and by means of it he weaves together, one may say, the whole of the proem. Look at it from the beginning. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for the grace which hath been given you by Jesus Christ, even as the testimony of Christ hath been confirmed in you, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you unreprovable in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye have been called into communion with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Seest thou the constant repetition of the name of Christ, from whence it is plain, even to the most unobservant, that not by chance nor unwittingly he doeth this, but in order that by incessant application of that glorious name he may draw off their swelling humors, and cleanse out the corruption of the disease. Verse 9. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son. Wonderful! How great a thing saith he here! How vast the magnitude of the gift which he declares! Into the fellowship of the only begotten have ye been called, and do ye addict yourselves unto men, 
what can be worse than this wretchedness? And how have ye been called by the Father? For since through him and by him were the phrases which he was constantly employing in regard of the Son, lest men might suppose that he so mentioneth him as being less, he ascribeth the same to the Father. For not by this one and that one, saith he, but by the Father have ye been called. By him also have ye been enriched. Again ye have been called. Ye did not yourselves approach. But what means into the fellowship of his Son? Hear him declaring this very thing more clearly elsewhere. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we die with him, we shall also live with him. Then, because it was a great thing which he had said, he adds an argument fraught with unanswerable conviction. For, saith he, God is faithful, i.e. true. Now, if true, what things he hath promised he will perform. And he hath promised that he will make us partakers of his only begotten Son. For to this end also did he call us. For his gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. These things, by a kind of holy artifice, he inserts thus early in his discourse, lest after the vehemence of the reproofs they might fall into despair. For assuredly God's part will ensue, if we be not quite impatient of his reign. As the Jews being called would not receive the blessings, but this was no longer of him that called, but of their inconsideration. For he indeed was willing to give, but they, by refusing to receive, cast themselves away. For had he called to a painful and toilsome undertaking, not even in that case were they pardonable in making an excuse. However, they would have been able to say that so it was. But if the call be unto cleansing and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and grace and a free gift, and the good things in store which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, and it be God that calls, and calls by himself. What pardon can they deserve, who come not running to him? Let no one therefore accuse God, for unbelief cometh not of him that calleth, but of those who start away from him. But some man will say, He ought to bring men in, even against their will. Away with this. He doth not use violence, nor compel. For who that bids to honors and crowns, and banquets and festivals, drags people unwillingly and bound. No one. For this is the part of one inflicting an insult. Unto hell he sends men against their will, but unto the kingdom he calls willing minds. To the fire he brings men bound and bewailing themselves. To the endless store of blessings not so. Else is it a reproach to the very blessings themselves, if their nature be not such as that men should run to them of their own accord, and count it a great favor. Whence is it then, say you, that all men do not choose them, from their own infirmity, and wherefore doth he not cut off their infirmity? And how, tell me, in what way ought he have cut it off? Hath he not made a world to teach us his loving kindness and his power? For the heavens, saith one, declare the glory of God, Hath he not also sent prophets? Hath he not both called and honored us? Hath he not done wonders? Hath he not given a law both written and natural? 
Hath he not sent his son? Hath he not commissioned apostles? Hath he not wrought signs? Hath he not threatened hell? Hath he not promised the kingdom? Doth he not every day make his son to rise? Are not the things which he hath enjoined so simple and plain, that many transcend his commandments in their exceeding love of perfection? What was there to do unto the vineyard that I have not done to it? And why, say you, did he not make knowledge in virtue natural to us? Who speaketh thus, the Greek or the Christian? Both of them indeed, but not about the same things. For the one raises his objection with a view to knowledge, the other with a view to conduct. First then, we will reply to him who was on our side. For I do not so much regard those without as our own members. What then saith the Christian? If a remit to have implanted in us the knowledge itself of virtue, he hath implanted it. For if he had not done so, whence should we have known what things are to be done, and what left undone? Whence all the laws and tribunals? But God should have imparted not merely knowledge, but also the very mode of action. For what then wouldst thou have to be rewarded, if the whole was to be of God? For tell me, doth God punish in the same manner thee and the Greek upon committing sin? Surely not. For up to a certain point thou hast confidence, viz., that which ariseth from true knowledge. What then, if any one should now say, that on the score of knowledge thou and the Greek will be accounted of like desert, would it not disgust thee? I think so indeed, for thou wouldst say that the Greek, having of his own withal to attain knowledge, was not willing. If then the latter also should say that God ought to have implanted knowledge in us naturally, wilt thou not laugh him to scorn, and say to him, But why didst thou not seek for it? Why wast thou not in earnest even as I? And thou wilt insist on it with much confidence, and say, That it was extreme folly to blame God for not implanting knowledge by nature. And this thou wilt say, Because thou art right in what appertains to knowledge. So also wert thou right in what appertains to practice, Thou wouldst not have raised these questions, but thou art tired of virtuous practice. Therefore thou shelterest thyself with these inconsiderate words. But how could it be all right to cause that by necessity one should become good? When shall we next have the brute beasts contending with us about virtue, seeing that some of them are more temperate than ourselves? But thou sayest, I had rather have been good by necessity, and so forfeited all rewards, than evil by deliberate choice, to be punished and suffer vengeance. But it is impossible that one should ever be good by necessity. If therefore thou knowest not what ought to be done, show it, and then we will tell you what is right to say. But if thou knowest that uncleanness is wicked, wherefore dost thou not fly from the evil thing? I cannot, thou sayest, but others who have surpassed thee in well-doing will plead against thee, and will more than prevail to stop thy mouth. For thou perhaps, though living with a wife, art not chaste, but another even without a wife keeps his chastity inviolate. Now what excuse hast thou for not keeping the rule, while another even leaps beyond the lines that have been drawn to mark it? But thou sayest, 
I am not of this sort in my bodily frame, or my turn of mind. That is for want, not for power, but of will. For thus I prove that all have a certain aptness towards virtue. That which a man cannot do, neither will he be able to do, though necessity be laid upon him. But if necessity being laid upon him, he is able, he that leaveth it undone, leaveth it undone out of choice. The kind of thing I mean is this, to fly up and be borne towards heaven, having a heavy body, is even simply impossible. What then, if a king should command one to do this, and threaten death, saying, Those men who do not fly, I decree that they lose their heads, or be burnt, or some other such punishment. Would any one obey him? Surely not, for nature is not capable of it. But if in the case of chastity this same thing were done, and he were to lay down laws that the unclean should be punished, be burnt, be scourged, should suffer the extremity of torture, would not many obey the law? No, thou wilt say, for there is appointed even now a law forbidding to commit adultery, and all do not obey it. Not because the fear loses its power, but because the greater part expect to be unobserved so that, when they were on the point of committing an unclean action, the legislator and the judge came before them, the fear would be strong enough to cast out the lust. Nay, were I to apply another kind of force inferior to this, were I to take the man and remove him from the beloved person, and shut him up close in chains, he will be able to bear it without suffering any great harm. Let us not say, then, that such a one is by nature good, and such in one by nature evil. For if a man were by nature good, he could never at any time become evil, and if he were evil by nature, he could never become good. But now we see that changes take place rapidly, and that men quickly shift from this side to the other, and from that fall back again into this. And these things we may see not in the scriptures only. For instance, the publicans have become apostles and disciples traitors, and harlots chaste, and that robbers have found approval, and magicians have adored, and ungodly men passed over unto godliness, both in the New Testament and in the Old. But even every day a man may see many such things occurring. Now if things were natural, they could not change. For so we, being by nature susceptible, could never by any exertions become void of feeling. That which is whatever it is by nature, can never fall away from such its natural condition. No one, for example, ever fell away altogether from sleeping. No one from a state of corruption changed into incorruption. No one from hunger to the perpetual absence of that sensation. Wherefore, neither are these things matters of accusation, nor do we reproach ourselves for them. Nor ever did any one, meaning to blame another, Say to him, O thou, corruptible and subject to passion, but either adultery or fornication or something of that kind we always lay to the charge of those who are counted guilty, and we bring them before judges who blame and punish, and in the contrary cases award honors. Since then, both from our conduct towards one another and from others' conduct to us when judged, and from the things about which we have written laws, and from the things wherein 
we condemn ourselves, though there be no one to accuse us, and from the instances of our becoming worse through indolence, and better through fear, and from the cases wherein we see others doing well, and arriving at the height of self-command, it is quite clear that we also have it in our power to do well. Why do we, the most part, deceive ourselves in vain with cold pretexts and excuses, bringing not only no pardon, but even punishment intolerable, when we ought to keep before our eyes that fearful day, and to give heed to virtue, and after a little labor obtain the incorruptible crowns? For these words will be no defense to us, rather our fellow servants, and those who have practiced the contrary virtues, will condemn all who continue in sin. The cruel man will be condemned by the merciful, the evil by the good, the fierce by the gentle, the grudging by the courteous, the vainglorious by the self-denying, the indolent by the serious, the intemperate by the sober-minded. Thus will God pass judgment upon us, and will set in their place both companies, on the one bestowing praise, on the other punishment. But God forbid that any of those present should be among the punished and dishonored, but rather among those who are crowned, and the winners of the divine kingdom, which may God grant us all to obtain through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom unto the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory, power, honor, now and ever and unto everlasting ages. Amen. End of homily 2